a very, very important part of regenerative agriculture is observation. As we've went down this path and improved soil health, which improves insect health, which improves bird populations and wildlife, our forage quality has been increasing as we're doing this as well, mm-hmm. and the diversity of plants is greatly increasing. In the pastures, we're over 100 species of plants now. Um, well, there's a, a saying with nature, you pull a string, they're all connected. I think, I think that's very true. Welcome to the 330th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, regenerative agriculture, community food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. There's no other way to say it. These are dark times for small and medium-sized dairy farmers. The latest census of agriculture shows that Minnesota lost nearly 1,500 dairy farms between 2017 and 2022. The news is even worse in Wisconsin, which lost almost double the number of dairies during the same period, representing a 30% drop. Meanwhile, large-scale CAFOs that house thousands or even tens of thousands of cows are growing at an unprecedented rate, threatening the environment and resulting in the kind of overproduction that leaves little room for smaller farms. This is having devastating impacts on rural communities. These changes in the dairy business are the result of, among other things, government policies that favor a consolidated model and a processing, distribution, and marketing system controlled by major corporations that benefit from having fewer farmers on the land. Given all that, why is it that when I stepped into Derek Schmitz's dairy barn on a recent winter day, I found that the 30-year-old farmer had a smile on his face? After all, Even though the land he farms sits in the number one dairy county in Minnesota, I passed farm after farm where cows were no longer present. Some of the farmsteads had even been bulldozed to make way for endless corn and soybean fields or fancy McMansions. Derek, who farms with his wife Taylor near Cold Spring, is definitely going against the grain when it comes to dairy industry trends. He milks 70 cows and has a long-term goal of expanding to 120. To put that in context, the average dairy herd size in the United States is now well over 320 cows. He milks in an old-school barn that sits on 225 acres of rented land. He owns one tractor and a bale-in wrapper and has invested little in housing the cows, choosing to keep them outside as much as possible. And at a time when massive production is equated with profitability, Derek focuses more on return on investment. In his case, That means keeping expenses to a minimum and not pushing his herd to produce as much milk as possible. In fact, instead of a -a two-a-day routine, Derek now milks just once daily. He finds such a system is less stressful for the cows as well as the farmer and results in more money in the bank. At times, he's estimated he's producing milk at about half the cost of other farmers. A critical component of the Schmitz dairy operation's success starts literally from the ground up. Of all the inputs on a dairy farm, feed is the most expensive, and Derek feels he's been able to keep his feed costs under control by allowing the cows to harvest their own forage through regenerative grazing. This is a system that relies on rotating animals through paddocks in a way that prevents overgrazing and spreads manure and urine in a manner that builds soil biology. Such a system is also based on giving those paddocks long rest periods, which helps keep the plant systems healthy above and below the ground 
while extending the grazing season for more months of the year. Regenerative grazing focuses on developing pastures that are made up of diverse plant systems, which helps build a resilient soil biome that produces forages consistently, even in extreme weather conditions. The Schmitzes have been dairy farming on rented land for a decade, and it hasn't always been easy, but Derek is convinced that regenerative grazing is the key to long-term success. He feels that emulating nature and relying on perennial plant systems provides the kind of ecological and economic sustainability needed to remain a viable farm long into the future. That's why he spends plenty of time observing the connections between a healthy, grass-based ecosystem, healthy cows, and a healthy bottom line. To him, they're all inextricably linked. This way of low-input farming is also allowing the Schmitzes to enter the organic milk market this spring which will result in premium prices for what the cows are producing. On April 5, 2024, during the Regenerative Livestock Symposium at the University of Minnesota, Derek will be speaking about the role emulating nature plays in his farm's success. For more information on that symposium, check out the podcast page for Ear to the Ground 330 at landstewardshipproject.org. In the meantime, here's a conversation I had with the farmer, while we took shelter from the winter wind in the dairy barn. We talked about why a system based on building soil health with livestock gives this young farmer a reason to feel positive about farming and the role it can play in supporting his family, nature, and a healthier food system. We've always grazed and believed in grazing. We just took us a few years to find regenerative grazing, and um, that's really made the, the biggest change for us. And what, what was it about regenerative grazing that uh, really drew you? Um, I had a few people that I really looked up to who challenged the way I thought. The idea of farming, of emulating nature while farming, just really, really appealed to me. And uh, I think that's what drove me to it. Because I have a love of nature and wildlife. And the idea of that you could farm while benefiting all those parts of the world are are really nice yeah i just wondered derek if you could just give kind of your off the top of your head your what your definition of a regenerative farm is i would say a regenerative farm is it's a way of farming while promoting soil health community health the health of the farmer and the financial health of the farmer as well and the ecological health of the the area and you said you would really were drawn to that because you have an interest in wildlife and kind of the environmental aspects of it. But I know one of the things I was looking at one of your case studies, you've really kind of crunched the numbers on the economics of this because you know it's great if you <laughs> you're seeing more birds and you're you feel like you're improving the land, but if you can't make a living on the land and you know make it viable economically that it does doesn't do you much good but it sounds like you really feel like it's you've been you said you've been doing this for about 10 years that you're kind of hitting your stride a little bit financially mm-hmm. i feel like the the weight's starting to lift um but starting any i think probably any farming enterprise you're gonna have a period at the beginning where it's just tough you know you're trying to put together the right herd of livestock or Finding the, finding the right adapted livestock, I guess, and putting together whatever equipment you may need and just figuring out a system that works for you, that's just tough. So in the earlier years, we didn't have as much focus on the wildlife parts as much, um, simply because, part of it, partly because we didn't know 
that yeah. we, we could do both. Also, because I just heard somebody say it really well this last week, you can't be red or you can't be green if you're in the red. So it yeah. makes a, um, now that we, we're starting to become more profitable, it's, it's easier to put more attention towards those wildlife portions. But they don't have, they're not mutually exclusive. We can do both at the same time. And um, we've found as we work to benefit the wildlife portions of the farm or, or benefit wildlife, we're actually increasing our own productivity and profitability as well. What are some of the, I guess, connections you're seeing as far as, well, some of the wildlife maybe you've seen that maybe weren't on the farm before? So as we've discovered regenerative grazing and adaptive grazing and became good at it, a big problem in the grazing world, and it's especially prominent in the dairy grazing world, is these very short, very regular grazing rotations or rest periods. These, you know, graze every 24 days or 26 days or, Mm -hmm. you know, 15 days. There's not enough tall forage there for birds to nest in well or insects to hide in. So as we've added a days to our rest periods now we're doing some rest periods of you know our average rest period is probably close to 50 days or 60 days but we've had some rest periods as long as 90 or 95 the bird population has just exploded and we're seeing probably three or four times as many birds as we used to um, our irrigators are just covered in bird poop because <laughs> there's just thousands of birds out there and we're seeing um, nesting populations every year there's probably a dozen or more pheasants nesting in the pasture. And we have another interesting thing is we have, last year I found six mallard duck nests and we're a half mile from water. So yeah. we must just have the right the right area for them to come and feel safe. And, and, and with birds comes predators. So we mm-hmm. see lots of predators too. And it's just really great to see. Yeah. Do you feel like you're in a situation where you, when you see more birds, that that's a good indicator that your forage health is really getting to where you want it to be and that your productivity and that you're able to kind of equate things, indicators like more bird life with better production in your cows? Yeah. Well, yeah, the bird population is increasing because our, you know, the prey for the birds population is increasing, Mm -hmm. which means we have more insects. I mean, the the pasture is just alive when you split the canopy and look down amongst it. Um, And the birds are in their harvest, taking their harvest and, um, and, and we, it's not like we have insect pressure on the plants. I think there's just a, it's just a good house for them. And um, well, there's a, a saying with nature, you pull a string, they're all connected. I think, I think that's very true. It helps you, I think, I would think, when you're going out, moving the fencing and that, that if you can start to go, oh, I'm seeing this, that means maybe I'm going to be seeing more milk in the tank or I'm at least going to have more profitability there. Yeah, that's very true. That, that's a very, very important part of regenerative agriculture is observation. And um, as we've went down this path and improved soil health, which improves insect health, which improves bird populations and wildlife, our forage quality has been increasing as we're doing this as well. Mm-hmm. And the, the diversity of plants is greatly increasing. In the pastures, we're over 100 species of plants now. And that gives those cows the choice um, like in some of Fred Provenza's work, they talk about how cows will eat, you know, three to five plants a day for the majority of their diet, but they'll eat up to 50 or 75 when given the opportunity. And when they can have that choice, they will, you know, you've got to look at the plants. That's a that's a pharmacological center. That's a nutrition center. They can find everything they need. So we're seeing cow health skyrocket. We have higher quality milk, higher component milk. And actually, we've seen a slight uptick in production too. So it's, it's, it's a win, 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 win. 
And it sounds like it really starts with that soil health, that that's the base of, of everything. Did you, Was it a pretty steep learning curve for you to start to really look at the soil itself and try to figure out how to build it? I, I, one of the things I read in a case study on yours is was done on your farm here is that, uh, and this sounds like a no-duh thing, but it is a lot of things, one of the things farmers don't uh, think about you started taking a shovel out with you out into the out into the pastures, out into the paddocks, and that sounds like that's a, just a really key thing. Just something as basic as turning up some of that soil and taking a look at it. Mm-hmm. So I'd been reading Alan Williams and Gabe Brown stuff for probably fifteen years, and at first I thought they were kind of nuts when they're talking about bringing <laughs> a shovel out there and you know long rest periods. I thought there's no way that works for cows, mm-hmm. and we were kind of stuck on a you know like I said we'd always grazed, but we always thought. We needed a lot of the conventional tools as well. We had the TMR mixer and the tra- uh, tractors and lots of supplementation. And honestly, we were to the point where we just couldn't afford that stuff anymore. So I had to get humbled a little bit and start listening a little closer to Alan and Gabe. And, and I started taking a shovel out there, turning over the soil, seeing what was happening. Initially, when I extended rest periods, I thought I would kind of prove Alan wrong. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and that's not how it worked. <laughs> so... It just started working, and then, you know, like I said, the, the observation is so critical. I just started paying close attention to what was going on because I knew I couldn't. I knew there was no spending my way out of the problems I had mm-hmm. with extra supplements and stuff. I had to listen to what they had to say, and and um, it was the turning point for us. Can you give me a little background on what this farm before you came here? What was it a dairy operation or a cropping operation, or what was their kind of what was their land use here? Mm-hmm. So this farm was, um, the dairy was operated as a conventional dairy, um, but they had been soil health minded since the 70s. Um, when I came here um, four or five years ago now, four years ago now, they were um, synthetic free for I think six years when I came. So it was just a matter of following that sixth soil health principle when I came here and integrating the livestock. Um, about half the farm was seeded down into perennials that they did the summer before I came. Mm. So in the next couple of years after that we got the rest of the farm seeded down and was really able to apply the livestock that was the one thing they were missing of the five principles was the li- integrating the livestock yes yep yep so they had not done dairy for a while it sounds like uh, they had done dairy for a long time but not a grazing dairy it was oh, just a, a it was a conventional they had cows hadn't been grazed here in probably you know, 30 years or more or 40 years did you? How long did it take for you to start to see some changes when you? I mean, did, and did you introduce grazing right away on the operation when you came here? Yeah, yeah, I started grazing immediately, and within, I mean, I don't even think I was through my first round of grazing yet, and I was seeing morphological morphological changes in the plants and the pasture mix that they had seeded down was pretty diverse, mm-hmm. and uh, because they had been synthetic free for a while, the insect populations were pretty good. We've taken them to another another level since then, but this farm was kind of an oasis in a corn and soybean world. Speaking of this farm, you so you said this is the third farm you've been on uh, since you started dairying on your own there, and this you're renting this place, is that right? That surprised me a little bit in that I think it can be difficult for farmers who are renting sometimes to invest in long-term soil health building because they're like well i'm not sure how long i'll be here but it sounds like you have the confidence to 
build that soil health and i guess you must have a pretty good relationship with the owners or talk a little bit about that because that can be a real deterrent from sometimes for people to build long-term soil health when they're on a rental type situation yeah i have a very good relationship with the landlord and we think a lot on the same page as, as far as we we want to keep improving the land and i guess i don't worry too much about long-term investment here because now i know what to do and i can go do this somewhere else you know someday when i move on from here i'm not too worried if i leaving behind what i've built because i think somebody else can take advantage of that and take themselves to the next level so it doesn't really bother me and it sounds like they kind of had a steward land stewardship ethic so that they must enjoy what you're doing here yeah yeah they're they're very happy seeing what we've done and and what's happening with the land and the soil you're we're standing here in stearns county the number one Dairy County in the state of Minnesota, you feel like you're kind of being able to hit your stride financially. Have you like ever done a comparison of what is costing you to, or kind of what your return on investment is, and 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 what's it costing you to produce milk compared to if you were conventional or you know what some of the conventional farmers in the area might be? Um, I haven't done one in the last maybe six months, but the ones we've done in the past, we can produce milk at almost half the cost of what other producers can. What it comes down to is the conventional milk price is a roller coaster mm-hmm. and you don't know what you're gonna get, so. Because you are selling into the conventional market? For another three months. Oh, yeah. Uh, are you going to, into organics or? Yes. Yep, yep, May in May we should be on with Organic Valley, okay. so. Right. So that'll make a difference. Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, one of the things I was looking at your case study that struck me was, and I think this is, to me, from the other regenerative farms I've been on, this is a real important focus, is to not focus so much on productivity, but on return on investment and what you're actually, the actually profit you're getting. <laughs> the high yields, don't, and this is true in corn, it's true in, in dairy, it's, tr- it's true in all aspects of agriculture. High yields don't necessarily equate to high profits. So you've really looked at things like I think like you're milking once a day now, and some there's some other things where you are you are maybe getting lower productivity and lower yield, but you feel like your return is higher. Yeah, it's like the saying: production is vanity, profit is sanity. So yeah, we we ship quite a bit, quite a bit less milk per cow than the average producer. And like you said, yeah, we're doing once a day. I kind of have a rule that if I spend a dollar, it has to make me two. Because not everything that the salesman says sells you will, will work like they say it will. And, and I'm not into those things where you spend a dollar, you make a dollar ten, I, I don't do that. So we just have a focus on making just good quality high bricks forages, putting as much forage as we can through the cow. Typically we don't do, not that we're in any kind of market that prohibits us from using grain, but usually we don't use grain because I just don't see enough return. It's just like we're trading dollars. And then there's the cow health things that come along with that. If we can push our cows less, and even if they milk, you know, and it's if they milk less, but our replacement rate is 10% less or 15% less, that's money in my pocket if I don't have to raise those extra heifers or or if I can expand, or if I can sell heifers, or whatever, cows. So I have much more of a, I think it's more of like a long-term strategy, trying to think out 10 years in advance, rather than trying to make as much milk as I can to pay the co-op bill this month. I'm not into that. It seems like you have the flexibility, because you don't have a huge investment in facilities, infrastructure, that type of thing, that when milk prices really do take a nosedive, you can... 
cull some cows, you can kind of shift things around a little bit, and you're not tied into, oh man, I've got to pump so much milk through this facility because I spent this amount of money on it, and I'm going to be paying this forever kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we're really, really limited on facilities and equipment. The facilities we have, pretty much just a milking facility. As far as cow housing, most of the time we outwinter. If it gets really miserable, I have a shed that I can pack the milk cows into if I need to. Um, and as far as equipment, the only thing I own is a loader tractor mm-hmm. and a bale and roller, a three-point bale and roller. And um, I have no interest in other equipment. I don't like the maintenance that comes with them. I don't like things that rust, rot, and depreciate. So I just try and keep things really, really simple. And I think there's a lot of custom guys out there with fancy equipment they want to justify. So if they want to come and do, you know, come and do work for me, then that's just fine. You've got a driveway that they can drive uh, in and do it. Exactly. Tell me more about why uh, milking once a day, why that's working for you. Well, I've been reading about it for probably 10 years, and there's a lot of data coming out of New Zealand and Ireland. I thought, well, if they can do it here, that should should work here, even though the climate's a little different. And we'd been messing around with milking once a day late lactation for probably probably five years because we like to we like to dry off our cows in really good shape so we could put them on cheap feed so they can just maintain right until they calve because we make about half our hay and we buy about half our hay. Mm-hmm. So I make good quality hay, and I buy low quality hay for what I need for my winter needs. And, and another reason we do this is I read a study several years ago um, where they took two groups of dry beef cows with that were in their third trimester, and they split them. Then they fed one a, a high energy, low fiber ration. They fed one a low energy, low fiber ration. The other, you know, two separate groups. And the calves out of the cows with the low energy, high fiber ration lived longer had lifetime higher body condition higher breed back and better forage conversion so we thought well why wouldn't it work with our dairy cows so so that's the reason we started doing doing that once a day late lactation and then it, it just got to the point with the with our milking setup here and a young family and you know i'd play around with the numbers and kept coming up pretty close kept coming up pretty close so then one day we just said all right well, let's do it and uh, we did it and and I'm um, very, very glad we did. Mm. And that's year-round? Yes. Wow. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We've done two short stints where you milk twice a day for a while, just to, when I started second-guessing myself, two, two six-week stints. But, yeah, no, I think, we're, I think we're set on once a day now. It just makes the most sense. What, what breeds are you? Are you, uh, you of cows do you have? So most of them are some form of a Jersey and Fleck V cross. We really, really like those. Um, we put a little... Norwegian Red in the last couple of years, and those look pretty good too. Um, now the last couple of years, we've been mostly just homebred bulls of our own mix. So we'll probably keep doing that. We, uh, I think the epigenetics are too important to ignore. So and I, yeah, and AI is just labor and time and from genetics halfway across the world that yeah. I don't know for sure if they're going to work in my system. So right. Well, and that's a key point is that you really need to. It sounds like you really focus on how can I. It's different having a conventional a cow that's set up for a conventional system a grazing dairy cow is a different animal altogether and you really do have to breed for that it sounds like you've really worked on that yeah yeah it, it's been our biggest focus the last couple of years is developing cows that fit the farm and as we go farther down this path we see it's kind of a, an interesting way to think about the the cows are literally becoming part of the farm mm-hmm. and they're adapted to the forages we have and our management style and doesn't mean they couldn't work somewhere else they've just 
the uh, efficiency of the cow seems to be improving and and uh, their ability to stick around and it's really been a big change. Going back a little bit before we started recording we were talking a little bit about we've got had such an open winter and problems people might have with winter kill with alfalfa that type of thing and you said one of the things you've seen you feel like as you built up your soil health that issues like that really aren't something you really worry about it that you you feel like you, they're just more the plants are more resilient it sounds like or or that they're just really able to kind of roll with the punches a little bit just the whole system's more resilient yeah as we've um, developed soil health and improved our soil biology we see the plants growing later in the fall starting earlier in the spring i mean it takes a heck of a hard frost to knock our grasses and legumes out um, it used to be you know get down to 28 degrees and they were done yeah. and now we can get several day you know several frost in the mid 20s and they're unaffected i think it's just more sugars in the plant and and the biology is keeping everything warmer I mean, there's a, a lot of biological biomass in the top six inches that's living and breathing and I would say that's where our biggest changes come from. What about water management? I know you have irrigation here, but we, you know, Minnesota, and I know this part of Minnesota, at least for the last two years, has gone through kind of an unprecedented drought, and now we're in a winter drought because <laughs> we didn't get the snow that we needed. But do you feel like you're able to, is that soil, building that soil health helped you kind of better make use of any moisture that does come around? So we've actually been pretty dry here for about three years, pretty equal amounts. Last summer was the driest, actually, but the other two summers were quite dry. And we've actually been using less irrigation each year as the soil health improves. And I think part of it, we're figuring out how to manage that irrigation water a little better. But it just seems like the grass and the forages just need less. And I think that's several things as, as um, soil aggregation improves, as the diversity improves. I'm sure we're building up our mycorrhizal fungi. I know we are. So that's helping water move around more effectively and keep plants healthy. So it does seem like, and I think just heard something about this recently too, once your plants are healthier, they do a much more effective job of capturing dew. Um, so I think we've been seeing that as well. You're really committed to, you've just seen the benefits of the more regenerative system and, and you re- sounds like you're really committed to it and it's kind of starting to hit its stride both kind of ecologically and agronomically and economically for you has there been some look are you able to a situation where you're able to look back and go oh there's some mistakes i made <laughs> or what did it all just go pretty smoothly <laughs> i guess is there some things that uh, you're like i wish i could have did that differently or or some some real pitfalls that you had there yeah we've made some big mistakes some expensive ones took me two tries to learn that you have to buy the right cows you want two different times i bought cows because i thought they were convenient because they were there i thought oh this i'll you know they'll they graze some as heifers or or i'm not going to ask them to graze too much um, at one farm i thought you know we'll just graze 30 percent and do tmr for the rest and just big failure big expensive failure so we've definitely done that we've cheaped out on hay we've cheaped out on other things and it's cost us a lot so but uh, we don't make those mistakes anymore we only had to make them once or maybe twice and then uh, now we're done you know you learn from them and again since you didn't have a huge investment in facilities it wasn't like a business ending mistake it sounds like um no never never were in i shouldn't say that we, we were never in danger of losing everything but we were in big trouble in about 2018 that's when we really jumped head first on this regenerative stuff because we kind of felt 
that that was the our only option because okay. we were handling handing so much money over to the co-op for protein supplements and diesel fuel for TMRs and things like that. We just had to make the switch, and that was the, the somebody gave me a you know kick off the plank, and it was time to go yeah. figure it out. But yeah, how'd you get through that year? <laughs> Barely. It was mentally and financially difficult, but kind of the we came to a breaking point where I just decided I had to do something different. We had a new baby at home and we had to figure something out and I had looked at the co-op bill and I'm like no I, I can't do this anymore and I went and I parked the mixer tractor in the TMR I uh, I think I actually canceled the load of grain I had coming and I just worked with what we had we had baleage on hand we had corn on hand um, I cut the corn way back so I didn't have to feed protein mm-hmm. added protein and we just went yeah hay and protein I bought some um, some cheaper grass, your hay, which is probably better for the cows than the rocket fuel we had. And um, we just started culling cows that didn't fit and um, culled probably 30% of the herd over the next six months. And we could kind of use that cash to dig ourselves out of that hole we were in. And uh, it was really freeing like the month after that when I didn't have a new co-op bill. And then I started feeling better about the situation we were in. And when I realized, like, I'm just not creating these big holes. You have a sense of roughly, and it's going to vary so much from farm to farm and the condition of the soil and all that. But how long does it take, would it take somebody to start to see some real changes in their soil health when they start to kind of start to build that, the regenerative aspects of it? You can see real change year one. It can happen. It happens. If you're, in, I like the saying, you need to be intentional, not intentional-ish. If you're intentional with following the soil health principles, you will see changes year one. You'll see earthworms start to come back. Once you have that armor built on the soil, and I, I always think the, the armor is the one that always, to me, once that's built, you're capturing moisture and you're allowing your biology not to cook out. Do you have any any advice for somebody who, either in dairying or any type of agriculture who might be looking into doing something like well let's just focus on livestock i guess regenerative grazing that type of thing i mean what what would be some of the it can be a really hard transition especially if you've been doing it the conventional way for several years or your family has and and maybe you're renting land and you're not sure what you know what if you're going to be having that lease the next year that kind of thing but you have any advice for how somebody could kind of at least start to to get started in, in an area like this I'm a big fan of education, and I don't mean university education. I mean Soil Health Academy, maybe uh, holistic management, something like that. And they can help you understand your context, and you can see examples of it out in the field. I would think that's a, that's a really big one. And the next is just get on people's farms, talk to people, pick up the phone, talk to people. Everybody in this space is so friendly, mm-hmm. and they've been in the same cruddy situations that you're in, and they're more than happy to help you. If you, if you really want to listen and you really want to make a change, they're, they're more than happy to. They're, they don't want to. A lot of them are real, you know, people that are really doers. So they're not going to, if you're going to, you know, screw around and not make something happen or heat hot around, they're not going to help. But if you're a doer and they can see that, they'll help you. So, like I mentioned before, we're standing in Stearns County, the number one dairy county in the state. The news in dairy right now is not good. We've, we've lost a record number of farmers in Minnesota and in Wisconsin and other dairy states. And uh, it's just, 
really difficult. We're seeing a lot of young, really good farmers go out of business. We're seeing, you know, people who are in the middle part of their career, dairy farming career, just kind of calling it quits. And then a lot of people retiring and nobody's there to take over. I mean, how old are you, Derek? I just turned 30 on Sunday. Oh, happy birthday. (laughs) (laughs) So you're a young farmer. And um, I mean, how do you feel, uh, I guess in general, about being in the dairy business? It might surprise a lot of people that you are in the dairy business at your age and you feel like it sounds like you kind of maybe see a future, but I don't want to speak for you. How do you feel right now? I'm just more stubborn than most of them. Um, I, I think there's a there's a future. Um, I do see a split in the industry, I think, where there's going to be, you can you can go ahead and produce that race to the bottom conventional product, which I have no problem if somebody wants to do that. It doesn't bother me. And, uh, and honestly, if, if there was a a price we knew we were going to get a contract price i'd probably stay conventional because there's a lot of opportunity in the conventional world but i think it's going to split to more niche products it's going to be you know the conventional world or the niche world where i see a lot of future is in regenerative type products we've done a little testing on phytonutrients and what we can do with our regenerative even compared to organic grazing farms that are i would call them conventional organic farms mm-hmm. The quality of our milk compared to theirs, and not that this is a competition, but I think there's a future in that space. Is it, do you think there's going to be markets for anything like paying farmers for taking care of the environment, that kind of thing, you know, sequestering carbon or that? Is that something you've looked into at all, or is, have people been talking about that? Yeah, there's a lot of talk about it, and it's out there. I don't know if there's really reliable ways to actually measure that, and um I would rather, from what we've seen going down just on this farm, you know, being very regenerative for the last four years, the more, I guess you could say, like ecologically friendly we are, and the more we take care of our soil, the better our product is by large margins, large margins. So I don't know if that has to be paid for. If the farmer could just get paid for their quality product, they're going to want to make the changes themselves. The power of that comes through our diversity that we have, and it's these native forbs that are starting to pop in, and I believe that's where that's coming from. Well, it sounds like you're kind of having fun. (laughs) I've never done anything more fun than this. Uh, and, and 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 you have what is it three small children or yes. something? So is that it's it feels like sounds like you maybe see it, who knows if they'll choose to farm or whatever we don't know what kids do, but mm-hmm. that they it, you feel like you're able to give them a positive experience out there on the land. Mm-hmm. There's no better place to raise a kid than on a farm. So the kids just love it. They can have their pets and play in the mud, and that's my favorite thing. I think that's my favorite thing about this this type of farming that we do. Is it so much safer for children? We don't have the equipment flying through the yard. We don't have jugs of pesticides around, or you know, the worst thing that could happen is fall in a pile of manure. You know, <laughs> so there's, it's just, it's just a great, healthy, safe environment to raise kids in. For more information on regenerative grazing and the Regenerative Livestock Symposium being held at the University of Minnesota, see the podcast page for Ear to the Ground episode 330 at landstewardshipproject.org. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org or you can call 612-816-9342. By the way, it helps us greatly. If you can give Ear to the Ground a rating on whatever podcast platform you utilize, And word of mouth is the best way to spread the news about our podcast. 
If you like what you hear, tell at least one person about LSP's Ear to the Ground. Thanks to Laura Borgendale, Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening.